when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. And they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for those all of the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. And they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word to us, your people. May it bless our hearts. May it bless our minds. And may it bless our very selves to respond faithfully to what you say to us this morning. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. In the name of Christ Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. For Father's Day, I wanted one gift, I told Lindsay. She ended up getting me two gifts, but she got me the one that I wanted. I said I wanted uh, Tom Shalhoub's first and new book, Mean Dads for a Better America. And I said I want it signed. So she found me a signed copy. He apparently signed it at some obscure bookstore up in New York City on Saturday before Father's Day, and it arrived to me, I think, on Tuesday after Father's Day. I finished reading it, and it, was, it really was a good book. Uh, Dads, if, if, you sound, if it seems interesting, I, I encourage you to check it out, although it's got a little bit of some colorful stories about growing up and whatnot. But when he gets to one of the closing chapters of the book, he tells a story about having kids himself now, because it's really a book about him growing up. But he tells a story about having kids of his own now and how his parents have influenced him and have shaped his view and his philosophy of parenting. And he tells a story of being in a, uh, a park, I think, in, I think in Brooklyn, New York. He's in a park and one of his daughters runs up to him and she's complaining about something and she's frustrated and 
He doesn't even remember what it was because that's how we dads are. But he said he remembers telling her, Honey, I don't care how you feel. I care how you behave. And she ran off. She said, Okay, yes, Daddy. He ran off and went playing with her friends. And he says that he hears a voice that sounded disdainful. Sir. Yes. He said it was another parent. It was a lady. She said, What did you just say to your daughter? And he said, Oh, I told her I don't care how she feels. I care how she behaves. And he said, She's kind of taken aback and says, Where did you get that? He said, Oh, my mom probably told me that a thousand times when I was a kid. And he goes on and he said, You know what? I don't think I changed her mind, but maybe that that thought gets lodged in her head. And he, he goes on to say, Of course, he does care how his daughter feels. But priority one is how you act, how you behave. You can't live on just your feelings. What does it mean to be the church? The articles of religion, of Methodism, of our association, those articles that are found in the Book of Common Prayer. In in our articles, it's Article 13. In the Book of Common Prayer nowadays, it's Article 19. But in answer to the question, what does it mean to be the church? Here's the answer. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. Now that may be some kind of high-fluting religious lingo, but essentially it boils down to this. The church is the faithful people of God. People who are faithful to His Word and people who are faithful to the sacraments of communion and baptism as Christ gave them to the church. The core of what it means to be the body of Christ is to be faithful to Him. To be His people, not nominally, but in reality. Not in name only, but truly His people. His faithful flock. What is culture? Culture is a... It's a composite. It's a, a milieu. It's, it is a composite of languages, of politics, of traditions, of customs, values, beliefs, ideals... Large portions of these are shared by a particular culture. But it's really a huge idea, culture is. It's a big composite of a variety of things that are shared by a group of people. And culture, by necessity, by its very nature, is always in steady flux always growing, always expanding, always changing. Culture, in many ways, is like a large swinging pendulum. And if you look out over our culture, just over the last hundred years, you find that pendulum in massive swings. 
And the thing about a swinging pendulum is it's always reacting. It's always moving. It swings a bit far out this way and then it starts to swing back once momentum catches up with it. Rarely do you find it in the happy middle. Rarely do you find it there at the bottom, grounded. That's the nature of culture. And culture is important. Why is culture important? Because culture is our context. In many ways, it's home. It's where we are. It's where we live. It's those we live among. Those who surround us. Those who live in our neighborhoods. Those who produce our, our, our media. Those who produce our entertainment. It's home. It's our habitat. It's where we are. But it's also where God has always worked. The story of salvation, the story of God's self-revealing in Scripture is the story of how God came and invaded specific cultures. Came to specific people living in specific times and in specific places, surrounded by specific customs and specific values and specific traditions and languages. God always works in the specific. He always works in the moment. Yes, He's painting a large, large mural. But that's the end game. He's always at work in the moment. Redemption always happens in the moment. Culture is important because God uses culture because it's in culture that He brings redemption. For it is our home. You hear a lot on the news nowadays and Philosophers have talked for quite a, a few generations now about the greatness of Western culture. And what's so great about Western culture in particular? It's not that other cultures are inherently evil or inherently corrupt or anything like that, but there are things that are shared and known in the West that are unique. In the West, freedom and liber liberty have flourished and been defended like never before in the history of the world. In the West, truth, reason, beauty, and morality have been championed and nurtured like never before in the history of the world. Unfortunately, over the course of the last half century or better, these ideals have been systematically undermined and, in, and eroded by the anti-ideals of postmodern non-thought. Truth has been traded for lies. Paul, after all, was right. In the book of Romans, in that first chapter, we would rather hear a lie than have the truth. 
We'd rather be told, no, you're totally fine. Ignore those pains in your gut. You're all right. Then be told we've got cancer. And I'll remind you, sin is a cancer. It will destroy. And so truth has been traded for lies. Reason has been replaced by feelings. Shocking ugliness has been rebranded as self-expressive beauty. And morality, morality has been tarred, feathered, renamed bigotry, and tossed out the window. But to be sure, even at its very best, our culture is not, neither has it ever been, the gospel. God does not save the world by Western civilization. Western civilization, America, is not the shining city on a hill. The church, as it remains faithful to the gospel, as it remains faithful to proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Lord and He has come to redeem a lost world, the church is that shining city on a hill. It is the church that is called to be the salt of the earth. It is the church that is declared as the light of the world that must not and must never be hidden. No, the gospel intersects with culture. Even ours, even at its very best, the gospel plunges against culture. I think last time I, I mentioned the, the gospel being countercultural, Banks told me afterwards I kind of like that countercultural idea there. The gospel always is countercultural because God is never satisfied. As, as I've quoted countless times, probably more times than you care to hear, George MacDonald said, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. He will not be satisfied until ultimately all things are made new. And so the gospel, as it intersects with culture, it pierces the culture in order to bring redemption to those who are in it. G.K. Chesterton spoke of the gospel of Christ as it is the cross. It's not the circle. It's like a great sword that God plunges into the earth, drawing men and women to repentance. And God plunges and digs down into the earth with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that He is able to make all things new. Only He can renew. Only He can return us to the Lord. Only He can rebuild what is devastated. And so in doing so, as the gospel intersects with culture, comes offering life and hope to those within a given culture. Those within it are beckoned 
to strive for the best ideals of their culture. We ought to care for the very best that God has to offer to our nation. Just as we would care for the very best that God has to offer to our family. And for the very best that God would have to our neighborhood. Nobody hunkers down in their home and says, I don't care what's happening in my neighborhood as long as we in here are okay. We certainly should care about out there. We certainly should care about transforming culture. Because in a transformed culture, in a culture that is illuminated by the gospel, we've got greater opportunity for truth and goodness and beauty. And so those within a culture who are redeemed by the gospel are beckoned to strive for the very best ideals of their culture. And they are commissioned as salt and light within a dying earth and within a dark world. Go and be salt, Jesus would tell us. Go and be light. For the earth is dying and the world is darkening. Let's be up front about a few matters related to the church and culture. The age of Christendom is over. We may not like to hear that, But that great era of the church being the center of culture seems to be completely gone in the West. It's not very long ago we can probably remember when the church was the center. I, I, I have mentioned before, but you know, politics is downstream from culture, and culture, in my opinion, is downstream from academics or academia. We've seen it for 120 years or more that that postmodern thought has eroded basic western understandings and have and have sought to have sought to remove the influence of christianity in particular judeo-christian thought a little bit more in general but generally all religious ideas from having a great influence on culture but we've only seen that moving really in our culture over the last maybe 40 50 years 60 years at most you know, we reflect back on the good old days, you know, before I was born. And we think, oh man, the Leave it to Beaver, that, that generation, that was the best. But that pendulum was quickly swinging. And now, you've got everything rising back up to the level of politics. So that when I was a kid in high school... I really, I'm not like bemoaning. I, I hope I'm not coming across as, boy, man, I'm now the crotchety old man who wishes that things were what it was when he was a kid. 
But when I was in high school, my sophomore year in high school, Pearl High School had a school shooting. It was the first school shooting. It was before Columbine and, and all the others. It was, it was the first one that became national news, really. And the first thing that happened was all the churches in the area were called, bring your pastors, bring your youth pastors, put us into contact with any Christian counselors you can. School is shut down, we'll resume in a few days, but those first few days we will only resume on an optional basis. If kids need to come and pray, talk with someone, they're more than welcome. Now, you turn on the news after a shooting, you, are sh- you hear people being shouted down and shamed for even mentioning to be praying for the wounded or those who have lost loved ones. The age of Christendom is over. But the church has always done well when persecuted. You would think, no, duh, it's kind of the formula of Jesus. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. You should be happy when you're persecuted because you're sharing in me. And you're sharing in my work. The prophets were persecuted. I'll be persecuted. I believe it was Tertullian, the church father, who said, It is the blood of the saints that is the seed of the church. The church has always thrived when under pressure. When specifically under the pressure of the threat of persecution. The church in China is, I would say literally, but it's not literally exploding. But it is figuratively exploding in China. The underground church. Met with Thane Yuri at uh, Indian Springs just a couple of weeks ago. David, you know Thane. And he's telling us about, about preaching where they've got, the government has cameras that are moving in services when they come to take up a collection and offering you know they're a different culture you come forward and put a tithe in the box and they've got cameras on it because they want to know who are the people in this community that are giving to the church the church has always done well when persecuted we can look back at christendom and say oh what a loss but it was under the watch of christendom that we inherited what we now have We may not like the, the sifting that takes place during persecution because oftentimes it means our, 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 our pews aren't going to be as full as they might have been in happier days. But the church has always done well when persecuted. The church has always had more than its share of sellouts and hypocrites. There might be people who cut and run when things get tough. We see it around us today. We see it in the Scriptures. The church has always had its Judases. It's always had its Peters. And Lord love Him, but Peter did abandon or did, did deny Christ three times when facing the cross. 
The church has always had its share of Simons from Acts 8 who just wanted power, just wanted prestige, and just wanted position. And it could be that persecution weeds those out. But Jesus is looking for a faithful church. He's wanting us to be faithful to Him. Faithful to His Gospel. Here. And now. In this culture. In this context. In our home, as it were. In the end, that's the only thing we're called to. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. The renewal of our culture will only come after the renewal of the church. That is the only way it will happen. That is the only order of events. God will renew His church and only then is there the possibility of our culture being renewed. Consider the example of Jeshua and Zerubbabel from Ezra chapter 3. The priest and the politician. Interesting choice of characters. Jeshua and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, who was governor, and his brethren. We would do well if we're seeking the renewal of the church so that we might renew our culture. We would do well to follow their example. And in doing so, we're going to need a few things. We're going to need worship restored. This was the whole purpose of Israel's return, of Judah's return from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem and the Holy Land. It was so that worship might be restored in the temple. We've been so misshaped by pop culture that many in our churches have become, many of our churches have become mere gatherings of consumers, not worshipers of the living God. But even before the foundations of the temple were restored under Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they led the people of God back to Him expressed in faithful worship. Only when we return to true worship will, be, will we be ready to begin working to repair what's devastated. Because worship brings the possibility of redemption. And so God is looking for a church who will restore worship. And He's looking for a church that has altars rebuilt. Because there's no real worship in the Scriptures without sacrifice. Altars are places of sacrifice. We think of altars in a modern context. Like the 1800s and on. 
But even in John Wesley's day, when Methodism was founded, they didn't have a kneeling rail, not up front, because an altar was a sacrificial term. It was, it was where death happened. Altars are places where necks are laid bare and lives are surrendered. And frankly, many of us who call ourselves Christians would rather make little commitments to God than fully surrender ourselves to Him. Because the surrendered life is awfully difficult and it's awfully demanding. We don't like our difficulties and we don't like demands being made of us. But when we surrender ourselves on the rebuilt altar, God has rights and responsibilities of everything. Our true priorities and values are often seen in our calendars and in our checking accounts. Unfortunately, in opposition to what I said last week, there's not much difference between the values and priorities of most people who consider themselves Christian and their increasingly pagan culture. I would say it's funny, but it's not funny. It's sad how much the church looks like the world. And that's not a commentary on clothing. I mean, my goodness, I'm wearing a t-shirt. First time I've worn a t-shirt in a long time at church. And it's always a gimmick. You know, pastors wearing t-shirts are typically always gimmicks. I don't know if typically always is it's kind of a contradictory statement. But you know what I'm saying. But the values and the priorities of the church, the way we actually live our lives, the way we actually interact with others, remarkably similar. And that's not the faithful church. That's anyone who brands himself a Christian. Anyone who says, yeah, no, I'm down with Jesus. The altars must be rebuilt. We need worship restored as was done by Jeshua and Zerubbabel. We need altars rebuilt as they did. And we need, and this is the kicker, we need fear defied. Because there's no real faith without endurance under trial. We shy away from persecution. We shy away from danger. We tell ourselves that the safest place in the world you can be is in the center of God's will. And sometimes that's the most dangerous place you can be. You remember Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's instructions and warnings and and comments to the Pevensey children from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A lion... Well, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion. No, the Christian life isn't safe. 
There are real fears. There are real dangers. Your kids might get called to be missionaries to the Congo. Your kids might, perhaps even more dangerously, get called to pastor an inner city church in Atlanta. Somebody, uh, Chris Williams, was, he and I were talking about culture this past week, and he said, you know, Atlanta might be the most hottest of the beds because it's clearly pretty progressive. It's clearly pretty postmodern. It's, it's pretty edgy, but it's right smack dab in the Bible Belt. It's not like New York. It's not like L.A. or L.A.'s not, yeah. It's not like San Francisco. It's right there in the middle of the Bible Belt. There were plenty of reasons to be afraid of the surrounding people in Jeshua and Zerubbabel's day. In fact, chapter, uh, verse 3 specifically says it. There were plenty of reasons to be afraid, yet they trusted in the Lord who gave them the courage to persevere. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. One of the most powerful verses in Scripture. Because it speaks to defiance in the face of fear. It may cost us our lives, but we will be faithful and we are ready to surrender our lives because our lives, quite frankly, are already His. They're no longer our own. Is there reason for us to fear the loud and demanding voices of our culture? Absolutely. In fact, the hotter things have gotten over these last, really, two, three years, the thing that keeps coming back to my mind is the pressure that can come on a congregation like ours if we remain faithful. And you see... Leaders caving to pressure throughout the claimed Christian church in the West. Sure, there's reason to fear. But as our kids were challenged this last week at camp, and as some of the shirts among you and the shirt right here before you says, we are called to be bold, to be brave, to be courageous. For the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. And so the fight for our culture begins now. It begins here. Who are we? We're nothing. We're just Faith Methodist Church meeting as a little church in a huge space in Cobb County, Georgia. But here's where the fight for our culture begins. 
Our culture will never be restored to its best ideals until Christians, until you and I get into our heads and hearts the idea that God wants to restore and renew us. He wants to rebuild the foundation of our lives. He wants to transform us. Bill, fascinating how what you shared is dovetailing. He wants to transform us, causing us to become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Renewal begins at home. If in the end we miss that, then we've missed everything. Because truly, nothing else matters. That is the one thing. Faithfulness to Jesus. In the face of pressure, in the face of threat, will we be faithful to His Word? Will we be faithful to what He has taught us? And that starts now. Let's pray.